I'm a big believer in that the future is something that we all just make happen. Like, if you're not happy with something, you need to just change the world so it's the world you want to live in. Hello, and welcome to the Culture and Technology Podcast. I'm your host, Severin Matusek. One of the core ideas of technological utopias is that at some point, humans do not need to work anymore. Wouldn't that be great? Technology will be so advanced that robots will cook our food, clean our houses, and even write our emails so that we can focus on fun stuff like going out for walks or recording podcasts. To some extent, this is already happening. We can order almost anything we need from our couches. Robots clean our houses already, and cars will soon drive themselves. It makes me wonder, though, is this the future that we really want? We're trying to be an alternative to having your whole life delivered to you on a couch. That's really how we started the company is to say, rather than getting on a bird scooter to ride a kilometer, what if you could walk that kilometer and have all your shopping follow you? This is Greg Lynn, our guest for this episode. Greg has been at the cutting edge of using technology in architecture and design for more than three decades. He's a man of many talents, but today Greg builds robots. Robots that aren't, in fact, intended to do all the work for you. That's why I invited him for a discussion about how humans and machines can interact with each other and build a brighter future together. Greg, welcome to the podcast. From where are you joining us right now? So right now I'm in Los Angeles. I split my time between Vienna, Los Angeles, and Boston. I'm in those three places the most. Before we jump into the work that you do now, I'm interested in the life of Greg Lynn and also the young Greg Lynn. So can you tell us a little bit about how you got started and, and your interest and passion in becoming an architect? Sure. So this isn't anything I've ever actually said before, but there are benefits to having parents that tell you what you should do in life. And I had a mother in particular that wanted me to be an architect probably from before I was born. Had nothing to do with me. Um, but so I did a lot of drawing and technical drawing and even when computers came around like a Commodore computer and an Atari computer and the first Apple computers, those were around the house when I was a young teenager. And I was always very interested in programming those and games and the 3D environments on those devices. So I would say a lot of the things I'm interested in now, I was exposed to, but always through this funnel of being an architect. Yeah. I'm curious. So you said your mother wanted you to become an architect before you were born. So what did your mom do and where does, does this idea come from that you should become an architect? Well, very funny. So my, my mother's, her grandparents are, were Czech and very bohemian. 
they were glass makers that moved to Ohio and um, they were all artists. Like, so, and, and it, and they were not good artists, by the way, they were lovely people. Um, but so my whole house was full of watercolors and sculptures. And um, it, actually there were some that were very good musicians, but my whole life was full of this bohemian um, Czech art and craft and music. And so um, I was surrounded by that. And I was constantly drawing and painting and sketching and, you know, building models. And so, and that was from the moment I was a little kid. In the early 2000s, I think, something exploded in your career, I think. You became one of those, you know, a very famous architect that became very well known for the use of computer and for the introduction of these organic elements that were generated through the computer into architecture. I think uh, Times Magazine named you one of the most, 100 most influential designers or architects in the world, you know, and, you know, things really blew up as far as I, I, as I saw. How did that happen and how did you perceive it to be, suddenly become a superstar in architecture in the early 2000s. Okay, well, there, there's a saying that Beverly Kipnis said once, never have so many been so famous to so few. So, you know, blowing up in the field of architecture is not really blowing up. But I, I think what, what happened in the 2000s is there were a lot of people experimenting with the computer And they were looking for happy accidents. And they were really describing their work as if they were artists. Like, I mean, an artist doesn't ever tell you systematically how they work. So I think I was one of the few people able to say, this is the principle of the tool. This is the consequences of the tool. And these are the opportunities for the tool. Where most other people would just say, I did this, then I did that, then I did this, and then look what I made. And and so I would really just say any success I had in influencing people was just being able to describe things in a somewhat logical manner, which was easily understood. Do you think that was because you were exposed to computers at such an early age, since the early 80s, that you already knew the tool so well? Yeah, I wouldn't say I knew them well, but I, I definitely knew the, the, I had some intuition into how things work. So it was easier maybe to understand, but I don't know. There's, there's a term I heard recently by um, Devin Turnbull, who was a graphic designer, who then became an audio engineer, and then a, a lifestyle fashion designer. Um, and he used this term called a keener. And he said he gets interested in something and then he'll spend a year or two having to learn everything about it. And not that he becomes an expert, but that he has to understand the principles of a thing. And I'm the same way, whether it's, you know, sailing, robotics, computers, you know, materials, you know, I really like to spend two, three years, go very deep into a thing and understand it at a fundamental level, not at an expert level, but at a, as a fundamentalist. I think another element of your work and your career is this interdisciplinary approach that you have. And I'm just curious in how you think about it or how you thought about it early on, because, you know, looking at your biography, 
we can see so many different and diverse names. It's not just that you build buildings that were awarded, you know, one of the most 30 most influential buildings in New York, but, you know, you have your work exhibited at MoMA, you have some of your objects in permanent design collections, you have designs with Alessi and Vitra, you curate exhibitions, um, and you work, you know, not only with institutions or museums or corporate clients, but also with someone like Nike, for example, on designing, you know, a microclimate chair. So I guess that, you know, the traditional career of an architect once they had the success that you had in the early 2000s, you know, coming up with, you know, these new forms of architecture could have said, I'll just do that. That's how I'll make money. That's how I became famous. I'll just do that for the next 30 years. But instead, you know, you went into many different directions. So how, how did that come about? How did the collaboration, for example, with Nike come about? Because you're an architect, you know, it's not, I guess Nike doesn't work with too many architects on creating chairs. So how, 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 how did it happen? Look, if given, if given the choice between being the smartest people, the smartest person in a room or being in a room full of people smarter than I am, I always want to go to the room with the people smarter than I am. Um, and any notoriety I've ever had, to me, the only use is getting access to become colleagues and friends and collaborators with people that have more expertise and knowledge than I do in other fields. And I, I really love just listening. I, I like to listen more than I like to talk usually. And so I, I just like being, you know, having a network of friends and colleagues and mentors who do something different than I do to provoke me and, you know, cause I, I really do get bored very easily. And I tend to like to do something once, but not do anything over and over again. So, you know, being successful at something and then turning that into a successful business is not always what I've wanted to do. I've liked to take something that was a success and do something more pioneering that's more successful on the back of that um, rather than just stopping and refining. I'm not a person that like refines. I like to think things are refined and elegant, but it, I don't like to spend like 50 years refining, you know, the same thing over and over again. So I don't know. The thing that bothers me the most in life is having somebody say I have a signature or, oh, it's like when I use the term blob, that is the worst moment in my life because it just stuck and it became like a stylistic thing. And I don't really believe in the currency of style and that kind of thing. Has there ever been a moment where you were kind of out of inspiration and tired or were like, I just don't want to, you know, deal with this computer anymore? Uh, you know, where you kind of like we're out of curiosity. No, it just keeps on going and flowing. No, no, it's more. I wish I had more time to do other things. No, I'm constantly thinking, oh, my, I missed that opportunity. This is something I wanted to do that I didn't execute on. I wish I would have done it because now it's gone. You know, the window for these things is very short. And how actually, I should have asked that in the beginning, but, you know, as someone who has, who is so active and so busy in so many places, you know, teaching, working, being a CEO of a company, I guess... For the last decades, you were traveling a lot, and that probably stopped a year ago. So how was that year without travel, just being in mostly one location? 
It was, I was with my fam, with my wife and children most of the time this last year. And that's been like a gift because they're, they're adults. And so I didn't think I would ever have six months with them ever again. It like six continuous months. I thought that was, was gone. So that was nice. Uh, very nice, actually. And discovering my local neighborhood and really focusing on, you know, Venice Beach and all the things that made us decide to have a family here. It was great to rediscover that again. Even though there were a lot of things we couldn't do, we still um, benefited from that. The thing I miss the most is all of my professional and social relationships. Because when I'm in Vienna, I'm seeing a group of people consistently for 18 years. You know, in London, there's people I see. In Milan, there's people I see. And in Ponte d'Era, Italy, there's people I see. And then there's a lot of people I see in between. I go to Japan every year. All of those relationships I tried to sustain with Zoom calls and coffees and drinks just doesn't work. So um, it's that whole aspect of my life has been put on hold. And I can't wait to travel again to just nurture those relationships. I hate being on planes and I hate travel, but I actually like all of the friends and colleagues I have all over the world and seeing what they're all doing. So I miss that a lot. And these friends and colleagues, can we imagine them as being from a very diverse group of people? So I guess it's not just architects and designers. Like, do you use these relationships and these friendships as well as modes for inspiration, for moving beyond your own imagination, for discussing, for gaining new thoughts? Uh, certainly. I'm a big believer in that the future is something that we all just make happen. Like if, if, you, if you're not happy with something, you need to just change the world. So it's the world you want to live in. I don't believe in adapting to things. I believe in um, people changing it. And frankly, that network in my little world is the group of people that I see changing stuff. And so it, it definitely just lets me know what's happening in the world. And I feel right now like I'm totally disconnected from, from that kind of foresight about what's happening because these people that are making things happen, I don't have as much contact with them. I want to talk about um, spaces and future spaces. Um, you know, the, the focus of this podcast is actually how culture is changing through technology and also how, how we perceive what culture is and how we participate in culture and create culture together. And obviously technology is a huge part of that. And I think already throughout the conference today, but also throughout the last episodes of the podcast, we had you know, lots of critical conversations about technology because, you know, we're talking more as a society about the negative consequences of technology or the ethical uses of technology. And I think, you know, I think you've also been thinking along that direction when it comes to this concept of civic spaces that you talk about since a few years. You know, the role of the architect in creating spaces that actually serve society and, and the way we behave. So how do you think about ethics and technology broadly and how your practice as an architect influences that? Well, it's, um, it's a very tricky issue and it's um, consolidating, I would say, in a way that I've never seen. So I guess the railways, those were in the United States private 
um, and it was a competition among private companies to connect goods to people um, through technology. So it's not like it hasn't happened before, but the railways ended up becoming regulated and um, managed in a way that was coherent. I mean, it's not that it, there weren't ethical problems. There were a lot, but it, it worked. But then when you look at things like um, communications networks and utilities and electricity, you know, I think of those things as somehow having a public aspect to them. And when I see what, what um, Galloway, who's a professor of business and marketing at NYU, he, he calls them the four, but Amazon, Google, you know, Facebook, Instagram, like let's say Snapchat um, and Apple, those four companies manage so much technology and so many services. And Amazon is just chewing into the other three so that they may be like the one technology provider when it comes to searching and authority on ideas. Like, you know, now everybody, you just go to Google. Like, you don't, all my students, they just go to Google. And so they're relying on Google's, they're maybe soon relying just on Amazon. But, but for information, for cloud computing, for vehicles, for delivery, for purchasing goods, and now for food, you know, so much of this is so linked to technology. And especially with COVID, more than ever linked to technology. Um, so it, it is maybe an issue with more the consolidation than anything else. And frankly, you can't take it away from people. You can tell somebody, you know, you should shop at your local store rather than have everything delivered by Amazon. But what do they want? They want everything delivered by Amazon. So people don't really vote or they don't vote with their pocketbook when it comes to this. The services are so attractive and the companies are so successful that everybody wants an iPhone and everybody wants, you know, their food delivered by Uber and everybody wants their packages delivered by Amazon. And it's, it's incredibly concerning. How does that influence what you do? For example, with Piagem Fast Forward, I mean, do you see yourself in relationship to these big technology companies? And do you see yourself in the responsibility to possibly designing technology and devices and robots that behave differently or are built on different values than from these large technology companies? Yeah, I mean, it's the, our challenge is that we're asking people to change their behavior and we're trying to be an alternative to having your whole life delivered to you on a couch. That's really how we started the company is to say, rather than getting on a bird scooter to ride a kilometer, what if you could walk that kilometer and have all your shopping follow you? And instead of calling a ride share or jumping in a taxi, why couldn't you just do that with a robot? Or even instead of driving your kid to school in the back seat, like most parents say the quality time with their children is driving them to school because there they can take their phones away and they have to talk to them. So it's better, maybe, we think it's better to school than have a robot carry all the kids' backpack and stuff. And you can talk to the kid while you walk and be aware of your neighborhood. 
but it's a change in behavior and it goes very much against this. We're going to do all the work for you. You're going to shop on your phone and we're going to bring it to you. And, you know, it's, it's definitely not aligned with certain services where people are supposed to just be like, you know, inert and things just come to them. Even without them knowing they want things, people are selling you things that they just think you might want. So we'd rather have you walk around and see things for the first time rather than push things at you and deliver them. I, I just remember that when you talked about the robot and, you know, also in your article about robot etiquette, which I found very interesting, you know, uh, you talked about that, yes, the machines and the robots that you create and that you believe will, will be part of our future should be basically mimic and support already existing behavior rather than um, superimposing something that an engineer thought out, you know, in a white room. But then now you said basically that as well as that, there are already certain values and worldviews as well built in, you know, probably values and worldviews that I as well agree with. I totally agree with like, we should walk more and I want cities to be more walkable and less for cars. But so is, is there like attention between those two because if you would just observe how people behave then you would probably not build a robot that encourages them to walk you would build an app that serves them food on their couch the robot that serves you the food on your couch there are thousands of brilliant people working on that problem so um and we we do think that there's space for both i mean we um we do know that um a hundred percent of people's lives just can't be spent on a screen on their couch, having things delivered to them. So, so that's for sure. Um, so we just want to be that alternative. We have found with COVID that solving a hundred percent of a problem with a machine is really hard. Like having a car drive itself a hundred percent of the time is a very hard problem. Having a car drive itself 90% of the time is, is actually practical now. But that 10%, it's hard. And it could take 50 years to solve that 10%. So it's the same thing with us. I mean, that's why we put some of our technology on other people's robots for construction sites and for agriculture and things like that. Because, yeah, you, there is a place for, like, a full replacement of a person's work or full replacement of a, of, of a service with a robot. But even then, you have to interact with people at some point. You know, maybe at the beginning and the end or maybe on the journey, you have to interact with people. And we're just focusing on that part to make these machines be more, not human, that's wrong, but to be more, have more etiquette so that people can interact with them without being um, losing something. We, we hear from people that have like shopping centers and things, they have a zero robot policy because they don't want their shopping center to feel like a warehouse. And so, and, it, and they don't want robots getting in the way. So a lot of times when our customers will even walk into a shopping place, a security person will say, We have a no robot policy here, not because of safety, but because of the atmosphere. So we're, we're trying to solve that thing so that they move with people in a way that you don't feel like you're having to get out of their way or they're too slow or 
And if you take a self-driving car approach and put that on a sidewalk, it's a disaster because a sidewalk is more dynamic than a street, much more complex. I think you use the word partnership between humans and robots, which I think is an interesting word that, you know, it's a partnership. It's not what, what kind of relationship do we have with robots in the future, I think is, is a question that a lot of people ask themselves in the light of artificial intelligence, the news of, you know, more and more robots are going to replace jobs. What is the future of work? So ha have you thought about this when you use the word partnership, that this is not something maybe that robots replace humans, but rather humans and robots enter some sort of partnership? Yeah. I mean, we think of robots as robots. Um, and so it's, it's funny because in some situations, People will say, like, the robot needs to be your friend or, you know, like your dog or your cat or something like that. And we don't really think that that's our job is to replace the social part of, a per of humans. Like, we don't believe in replacing the human interaction socially with a robot. Um, but we do care about how robots interact with people. We also don't want to replace workers. We want to power workers and we don't want to replace, you know, what we, we, we really want to replace is cars. I mean, if there's one thing that we wanted to, to, you know, substitute, it would not be a person. It would be a car. So when you say you want to replace the car and, uh, you know, you also mentioned micromobility as a major trend with, you know, scooters, electric bikes, I, th I think, you know, things that actually accelerated a lot over the last few years. When it comes to envisioning a future, a desired future, the desired future of Greg Lynn, of the city in 10 years, how would that city look like? What we've seen is that people are choosing to live somewhere because of the market, the restaurants, the schools, the parks, the sports places, entertainment, um, but that it's local and they're not choosing to live in major metropolitan places. So even, you know, San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, Boston, their population is all dropping and, and probably will continue to drop. And even the population that's there is not living there all the time. Um, so there are people that are investing in residences and having second residences, but also not, they're just not as dense as they were. Whereas places like Nashville and Charlotte and Austin and Salt Lake City and Boise, Idaho. These places are booming. Like sometimes 50 people a day are moving into these places or 50 families a day are moving into these places. So I think that people are finding urbanism in smaller towns and cities They don't feel like to have an urban lifestyle, you need to live in a major metropolitan place. You can find all those urban components in a slightly smaller place with a better quality of life, where, where also the distances overall are smaller, but the travel distances are a little bit longer. So, so for us, we're really focusing on those places and thinking about automation and robots rather than saying, well, this is a solution for Manhattan. 
First off, Manhattan doesn't need robots because they have subways and a lot of ride hailing and you don't need it. Um, you know, but someplace like uh, Nashville, you could really use it. So because there's tons of stuff to do in Nashville and a lot of it is walking distance, but right now nobody's walking it. Los Angeles, it's neighborhoods and it, powering those neighborhoods is even what we want to do in bigger cities. But I could take what I have in my neighborhood and go find it in Boise, Idaho. I mean, I've been there. It's like there's these places now that have all the urbanism of Los Angeles or New York or Vienna, but in smaller packages. To conclude our conversation, I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts about the climate emergency. I think I read in an interview, you know, that the one thing that's deeply troubling to you is the loss of the natural environment. And, you know, when it comes to architecture and design, I think something that has been very prevalent over the last few years was human-centric design, which is, I think, you know, an approach that, that you follow as you explained it. But now there's also these principles coming about planet-centric design, right? That with everything we do and design, it shouldn't just be for humans and for our needs, but for the planet at large. Is that something you're, you're currently thinking about? I think we have to look at things at a little bit larger scale and with a larger life cycle. So I know like a carbon fiber building, carbon fiber is one of the most energy intensive materials you can make. So if you just said, oh, well, should we build in brick or should we build in carbon? I think your average person would say, oh, brick is natural. It's made from the earth. It's a great material. But when you look at transporting a brick and the embodied energy and firing a brick and the weight of a brick, and then you look at the weight of the amount of carbon fiber we use, it's an incredibly green building material because you use so little of it. So net sum it's better for the environment than building in brick, but it's counterintuitive. And I, I think it's this, it's the same with a lot of things that there's a little bit of not marketing, but I think what people think is common sense, which actually doesn't make common sense when you really look at it at the scale of a planet. And it, it does mostly come down to transportation, you know, Like the glue laminated wood industry in Austria, it's really great. It's one of the most sophisticated technologies out there. And every Silicon Valley company wants to build with, you know, panel, wood panel, cross laminated construction. So they cut trees down in Washington. They send them to Austria to get cut and assemble them panels. They put them on a boat to Long Beach and then ship them up back to Washington State to build them at a, at a headquarters. And it's actually would be much better to build in another way. But <laughs> so it was the same thing with bamboo. You just want to be careful not to get on a bandwagon, but to always be a little bit critical. Yeah. And, you know, that just reminds me what you said in the beginning of our conversation, that the role of the architect is as well to challenge and not to be the developer friendly architect. So when it comes to, you know, climate change, is this something you think more architects should should act on and, and understand their responsibility in, in maybe challenging some of these common sense notions that in the end might not be what's best for the climate. No, for sure. For sure. And I think architects can have a lot of influence on those decisions if they take that on. And I do think, I mean, with my kids, 
if there's one thing, well, there's two things they've grown up to believe in. One is um, a fundamental value of diversity, whether it's gender, race, economic. They, they believe in diversity in a way that no generation has before. And they believe in sustainability and protecting the environment. I mean, these are the two values that they've been taught and hold true much more than any other values. Um, so I think this generation is supporting it and would actually make the sacrifices necessary to, to make those decisions. So um, I think it's, it's just a question of how do we deliver on that? I guess someone like you who's also teaching at university can be, be a major part of that, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, right now in the studio, we're looking at natural ventilation, you know, because of, you know, because of COVID, but also because of energy. And so we're, we're really trying to think like, what are alternatives, you know, instead of putting filters in your, your climate system, what about just having windows you can open? So we're, we're trying to be, you know, anything is open for, for a proposal right now. And I would say a lot of it is being driven by sustainability and, and also now kind of health and hygiene and safety. So Greg, we're at the end of our time. Um, thank you so much for the conversation. And finally, where can people follow your ideas? How can people engage with you or interact with you? Where should people find you? Uh, well, right now what I care about is, is people learning about Jita robots. And that's at uh, piagiofastforward.com or also mygita.com. So I'm, I'm curious. I, I love hearing all the feedback and, and I have like a little dashboard every day that tells me what people are commenting on and saying. So I, I think that's what I would love all the feedback on. It's the newest thing. That was Craig Lynn, a man of many talents. I can't wait to see how Gita and other robots that Greg and his team might come up with are going to change our lives. This conversation was recorded during Creative Days, an annual conference that got us creative minds from around the world in Vienna. You can find the links and the references talked throughout this conversation in the show notes in your podcast app. The Culture and Technology Podcast is produced by the Vienna Business Agency. The Vienna Business Agency supports businesses, the economy, and the city to develop Vienna's creative industries further. Over and out. Until next time.